That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio. And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. All right, welcome back to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. I'm Dr. Kara. I'm Dr. Dave. And who do we have today, Kara? Someone whose name you just learned. How to yeah, pronounce. Dr. Richard Vuksinik. How'd I do? Pretty good. Better than, Pretty good? I, better than I did with his wife. Yeah, I was going to ask if you knew your good friend's name here. <laughs> uh, so yeah, today we have uh, Rich. That's, it's Rich. That's this, what you know Rich is. Rich is one of my really, really close friends and uh, I love him. And he actually happens to be a really great naturopath. So that's why he's on uh, to chat with us today about some, some of the more rootsy sort of aspects of naturopathic medicine. Well, we were just saying we can't believe that this topic is has taken this long because it's like we talk about foundations and this is literally the foundation of our medicine. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting to have you on, Rich. So welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to dive into this and, and talk about the healing power of nature. Yeah, do you want to tell us because um, we approach you, we know you're um, very well versed in um, in lots of different topics and angles on naturopathic medicine, and this is the one that you were compelled that uh, to talk about. So, what brought you to this topic, and can we just explain or outline what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, um, today we're going to sort of dive into one of the principles of naturopathic medicine. So, as naturopathic doctors, we take that oath when we graduate, and that oath is dictated by these principles. One of which is to work with the healing power of nature and try and get a handle on what that might actually mean. I know when I started out as a student, it was, it was um, sort of more of an essence kind of thing for me. And I knew that the body wanted to drive towards healing and I knew that it could and that the earth was regenerative. I didn't quite, and that was about it. And so now, you know, 15 years Mm -hmm. later, we're starting to see some mechanisms arise that might help us get a little bit of a, a different lens on that. Um, And so in my practice, I'm really working with people in a different way and how we can access that healing power of nature and and just to bring some dialogue to what that might actually mean versus something magical or separate from us. And so just to kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, and that's that's, uh, often how it even gets perceived, I'll say, as a lot of our colleagues, um, maybe even colleagues around our age, Rich and Kara, were we're all about a decade out or so. Um, And I I hear it get sort of um, that healing power of nature. People get talking about it as just this magic phenomenon. And so I think this is uh, really important for people to, to know about as the, like the principles that lead to all the other talks we've had on this podcast. They really, in essence, just sort of come from that, uh, Mm -hmm. that core principle, which is misunderstood and, and, uh, you know, has the risk of throwing out the baby with the bathwater 
sort of thing, like, cause people don't know exactly how it works. And I know Rich, you're going to talk about some analogies that maybe help us understand it. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I just think this is so important, so important to talk about as a core, uh, founding principle. Do you want to, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that principle a little bit more in case people are saying, oh, what does it mean? The healing power of nature? What does that even mean? Yeah. So the healing power of nature, first we have to kind of, um, think about what, what do we mean by nature? And so I think for the sake of this conversation in my own brain and breaking it down, it's like, well, there's the great outdoors, right? There's the mountain equipment co-op kind of nature. And then there's sort of the <laughs> natural law kind of nature, right? There's what's represented by the, what we call in naturopathic medicine, the vis. So this life energy that runs through all living beings, um, that natural law that's sort of encompassed in our biology our physiology in uh, physics, that sort of thing. So I break it down as sort of the great outdoors piece and that natural law piece. And as NDs, we, kind of, we can access both of those mechanisms. And I think part of our job is to help our patients reconnect with some of the, those laws in any evoking nature and its impulse towards balance and healing. And so when we become disconnected from that, that's kind of when that disease can arise, right? And so there's just these natural processes that when they're flowing, we have health and balance. And when they're disrupted, we don't. And so it's about reconnecting to those laws and influences. It's about regenerating our our bodies, our minds, building symbiotic relationships uh, and building resilience in the body and the mind and in my sort of perspective on it. I think... I think that's um that's a great way to put it because I think especially us as clinicians you know we we often do you know value nature and we'll tell our patients you know get out for a walk go in the forest and have a walk or you know do some you know hot and cold therapy so we I I do think you know hopefully naturopaths are good at honoring that a little bit but perhaps we haven't thought too much deeper. And so I'm excited to explore some of these topics with you. So the first topic that we wanted to talk about, it's interesting when you're looking at a big, big topic, sometimes it's good to go really small. Um, and so we, we were wanting to start with actually looking at the nitty gritty of, of mitochondria. So can you tell us why you wanted to start there? Yeah, the mitochondria are just really, it's a whole fascinating area of, uh, research and understanding. And I know you guys did a previous podcast on that. That was, mm-hmm. give it a listen. We're just going to dip into this a little bit here, but the mitochondria, what really kind of excites me and sort of my, my literary brain is this whole notion of what's called the endosymbiotic theory. So basically it's like, how did mitochondria develop? So evolutionarily speaking, we had this sort of type of cell floating around in this really anaerobic environment, an environment with a lot, not a lot of oxygen. And then oxygen started to come into play and we had these bacteria emerging that would thrive in this oxygen and those other cells that were like, Oh crap, there's too much oxygen. This isn't, this isn't a good scene for me. I need to adapt. And they see these little micro, these little bacteria floating around that are consuming the bacteria and say, Hey, you look a little bit hungry. Why don't you come on in? And so they engulfed these bacteria. This is the theory at least. And so they engulfed this bacteria that would then consume the oxygen make it a little bit more stable for that cell and in turn providing nutrients to that bacteria. And in the ultimate biohack of evolutionary history, that bacteria basically takes over, starts to morph into and become the mitochondria. So 
basically the mitochondria as this really nitty gritty um, representation of what is the healing power of nature. It's symbiosis, it's adaptation, it's resilience, it's evolve, it's evolution and, and, and moving forward and strengthening those organisms and ourselves. And so it's really cool that we've learned a lot more about the mitochondria in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, we didn't really talk about it a ton when I was in school and now there's a whole bunch of stuff to chew on. And I just find it really, really exciting. And then just more from like a, a thematic or energetic perspective, we get all of our mitochondrial DNA from our mothers. We don't get it from our fathers. So there's this real maternal lineage piece. It's like this whole mama earth kind of thing. So it's a real sort of deep connection to that piece too. Mm. Um, and so I just find that, that that's pretty, pretty neat at least. And so if we can look at one of these law of natures or these mechanisms, we can use mitochondria as a way of saying, hey, what happens when we're working with the healing power of nature? Well, we could reduce it down partially to saying, well, what's your mitochondrial health like? What are you doing to improve mitochondrial health? We know that mitochondria dysfunction can lead to fatigue, loss of resilience, disease, accelerated aging. I think many of us would say that all chronic diseases have that undercurrent of poor mitochondrial function. Right? And that comes from oxidation, pollution, poor diet, stress, age. Right? And so if we think of how long we've evolved with that mitochondria, you know, we've been in contact with nature, 99.99% of our evolutionary timeline has been in direct contact with nature and our mitochondria has evolved with that. And now we're seeing this in this last 0.1% of our time on this earth, this real disconnection and how the mitochondria is essentially suffering because of it, right? So it's really this, um, it's almost like um, we're living in this sort of anti-hormetic uh, time, and we'll get into what that actually might mean, but really mm -hmm. we're not giving the mitochondria the nourishment it needs to flourish because of that disconnection from nature. So that is essentially working with the healing power of nature is giving that mitochondria some juice. And us living out of those rhythms of the earth or those circadian rhythms, is it not the mitochondria that are really susceptible to uh, imbalance in that? Yeah. So there's a few things that really affect mitochondrial function. Toxins in the environment would be one of them. A, a lot of sympathetic charge and, and stress will put those cells in a danger response mode where they're in protection and defense mode, and they're not actually into building energy. They're just about protecting themselves. Um, and then there is a disconnection from resilience building stressors. So things that have given mitochondria their bicep, right? So we, we curl, them, uh, we curl a, uh, a weight to build our muscle. And so we've seen a disconnection from these hormetic stressors in our day-to-day -day life that basically give our, our mitochondria the opportunity to get stronger. And that's a whole conversation that we can dive into. But you mentioned circadian rhythm, and that's a really beautiful example of working with the healing power of nature. Nature is a lot about rhythm. Right? So if we're disconnected from that sleep-wake cycle, which is what the circadian rhythm is, we are disconnected from our natural impulses and those rhythms. And so there are two main ways that a disrupted circadian rhythm can really affect mitochondria. 
we can see we're on our screen all night, we're inside all day, we're not getting that light stimulation. And so that's really gonna affect things like melatonin production, for example, right? And so we know that melatonin makes us sleepy. Melatonin also has a super critical role in the mitochondria. It's like it, it acts as like a, an antioxidant to protect the mitochondria from that stress that we get from pollutants and physical stress. Um, but it also helps produce glutathione, which is a major antioxidant in the mitochondria. So melatonin acts as those things. It doesn't just make us sleepy. So if we're disconnected from a natural rhythm, we're disconnected from feeding that mitochondria what it needs to protect itself. It's an interesting thought because, I mean, in medicine, you know, everyone knows melatonin, take melatonin to help, help you sleep. And we've almost extracted that down, like so reductionistic that it's like, yeah, take melatonin will help you sleep. But when you think and just dig a little deeper, it's like, well, why? And it's, you know, connecting you back to that pattern that you should naturally be in touch with. Yeah. Um, and I just, I've never thought of it that way. Well, we, we do that. <clears throat> I think in, in the West, right. We really, uh, yeah, you, we get really deterministic. And I, I, I was thinking, Rich, there's, um, there's that book. I don't know if you've read it, The Circadian Code. Have you read that one? Or do you know about it? By Dr. Panda. Anyway, um, so in, I, I, it's fair, I think it's fairly well known by some, some like nerdy people like us. It, some people know about it. And I was just looking, I just search it. And it's talking about circadian code is like as nature as it gets. But then, the subtitle, it says, lose weight, supercharge your energy. Uh, and you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's funny how we, it's, it still has to be turned into lose weight. And it, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you can't talk about dim light reflex and autophagy. It's not that sexy, right? To say, oh, yeah. Your cellular debris, right? That's not really going to yeah. 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 So the rhythm is a really beautiful example of, of that connecting with, um, reconnecting with the healing power of nature. So it's just basically tuning back into how our body is designed to function. How our mitochondria is designed to thrive and sleep wake cycles play mm. a hugely significant role in that. And so what does that look like clinically for us? It's like, well, sleep hygiene for our patients is a big piece. Um, not always the easiest piece to deal with, with and help people along with, but it's obviously critical. Um, it's about resetting your rhythm. It's about getting that morning light. It's minimizing the blue light at night, uh, taking the devices out of your room, um, doing breath work or nervine herbs or whatever can start to help break that vicious cycle of no sleep and poor lifestyle habits that might come from that. Right? And I will uh-huh. admit that that's not always the easiest gig, but once you can get that rolling, then you you know, you're really in tune with those, the healing potential of the body and of nature. Well, this, this is where stuff like this can get overwhelming though too, right? And I think maybe maybe you can clarify how you'd go about things. Because if I was to do all the, um, the nature cure foundational things properly every single day, it would like, it, it takes a lot of like psychological bandwidth or whatever. Is there, a, <clears throat> I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit here by maybe thinking of some clinical ways you would look at this. Like, um, sometimes it's more obvious to start with sleep, circadian rhythms and things like that, but you could also do grounding. You could also do breath work. You could also do sit spot. You could also do all these things that you're going to talk about to some degree 
how do you decide, is it as simple as like the one that is missing the most is the thing you have to do the most or how do we sort of fill up all these buckets a little bit? I think that's more of the art piece and the person that's sitting across from you. Like I can ask Sally Joe to go walk barefoot in the forest because she lives by a forest, but grandma Jean lives on the 11th floor in the middle of the city. That's not going to happen. So you're, you're, you're basically picking your spots and you kind of have your list in your head. You know, you have to hit some of these points and which ones do you feel like, and even having frank discussions with your patients, like if I ask you to do this, what's that look like for you? It's not a chance in hell I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. How about this over here? Uh-huh, I can work with that. So it, it's not really an algorithm. <laughs> it's a mm-hmm. person in front of you, basically. Right. And that's the cool mm-hmm. thing is that we have a lot of tools that we can draw on and try and match it to that person without that overwhelm. Right. And it's like, okay, just start with this. And then we'll go, kind of get a handle on breathing at night. And they'll notice that there's maybe some difference there. And maybe those nervine mm-hmm. nerves start to work a little better. Um, and then they, they, they wake up at a reasonable time and they can get that good hit of morning light and things start to shift. So again, that's another tenet of naturopathy is individualization, right? So that's the important piece there, I think. Yeah, which, which is, you know, in, in the internet times, it's, it's somewhat lost it, or it, it's in danger of being lost. It seems if everything's like a, a 21 day fix or to do this diet for 14 days, right? This is, this is where, um, like it or not, individualization or personalization of, of treatment is, I would still say at this point, superior. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the beauty of what we do and the opportunity that we have in working with people in the context with which we work with them is that we, mm-hmm. we can help navigate that with them, right? And uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's powerful, right? Because we can all be disconnected in our own sort of variants of disconnection from natural rhythms and patterns. And so you can go Google that and, and try and fit yourself in, but that can really be overwhelming. So, but if you have that third eye perspective that's seen some patterns and um, can maybe help you put a few pieces together, can say, you know what, I'm not going to give you uh, melatonin and 17 bottles of Nervine herbs. Maybe we just need to like get some sun when you wake up and start breathing a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit of exercise and go from there. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you, do you feel rich? Like the person needs to have a slight intuitive understanding of the stuff that you're talking about for it to hit home. Um, I think we all have a slight intuitive understanding even if we don't realize it intuitive or subconscious. Uh, remember this 99.99% of our evolutionary, our evolutionary history is linked to these rhythms and patterns and we know something's up. And so I think just from people walking through your clinic door, they're already tuning into something, right? For the most mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have we, um, do you want to talk about hormesis at all, Rich? Do you want to transition into that? Is it, is it a, a good break to move into that? Yeah, hormesis, uh, basically hormesis is sort of this uh, mild or acute, that, that temporary stress that increases the resilience or resistance of uh, the body. It's like the, the bicep you were talking about? A bicep thing so a little hit of stress then kind of wakes up the system says oh shit we have to respond to that stressor right so uh, one of the mechanisms of hormesis in the mitochondria for example is something called um 
reactive oxygen species signaling. So it's like, this simply means that there's this transient burst of oxygen in the cell that stimulates the cell to go, oh goodness, there's something in here that we have to respond to. Okay, boys, get off the couch, let's go and deal with that. And, and just in that act, there builds resilience and strength in the mitochondria. So hormesis or what I call hormetic practices are things that are stressors that challenge our system to develop more resilience at a mitochondrial level, but that extends all the way up into like a, a sort of psychological level too. And so, you know, we've... But, but Rich, can I stop you there? Because there's an analogy that I'm, I'm hesitant to bring up for... Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but it's... Uh, she knows probably. Uh, but it's this binary thinking, right? It's the... Because what... what I mean, if you talk to someone maybe 10 years ago, what, what would be a hot topic of like supplements would be antioxidants, yeah. right? But you need oxidation to make energy. But then we're told to take antioxidants. It's, it's like this binary thinking like today. Right. <laughs> Should we get into that? Um, and, and I think, <laughs> I think that um, maybe you, because hormesis is, is a great sort of natural example of that. Cause look, you can sit there and pump. If you sit there and pump your biceps all day, which by the way, I'd, I'd recommend pumping your glutes or your thighs instead. But anyway, if you're going to sit there and pump your biceps all day, you can't do that. You, they will rip apart and you will destroy them. But if you do nothing all day, you turn into a doughy, you know, pile of TV watching protoplasm. Right. So, it's somewhere in between. Do you, can I can I lead you down that path? Is that sort of is that relate is that related to hormesis in any way, or am I completely out to lunch? Milder acute temporary stress, something that um, on the surface we might think is oh we get yeah, like oxidants we have to get rid of all of them, but we need that little hit of oxidation to actually prime the system to do something about it, or else you. Mm -hmm you lose that resilience and then those mitochondria just start to shrivel and shrink and atrophy. And that's basically what's happening. And for a lot of us, you know, and like just simply by aging between the age of 20 and 70, we lose like 70% of our mitochondria and 50% of that happens by the time we're 40. So turning 40 does suck. And, and that <laughs> if we don't uh, build in some of these hormetic stressors, like we, we co-evolved these things. Like we, we, we evolved to strive in with these types of stressors as say a hunter gatherer, you're out there, you're, you know, hormetic stressors are physical activity, exposure to hot and cold, right? Exercise or movement. Those are some really prime examples, right? And so we were doing that for all of our evolutionary times, you know, we're taking a bath in the cold river. We're, you know, um, transcultural sweat therapies. We're doing sweat lodges or uh, banya therapy or whatever it might be. So we're engaging in these practices that stimulate our body to respond in this way and to build resilience. And that in disconnecting from our natural rhythm. So we've disconnected from circadian rhythm, but we've also disconnected from hunting and gathering, mm -hmm. not being on a couch, all of those things. So to encompass and get back in touch with the healing potential of nature, part of that potential is these types of stressors. And so if I could hammer hand anything home today, it's like 
Well, in when I'm sending somebody home with a plan, what hormetic practice are we looking to incorporate in that? There's, there's always that's so what might what might be some of the examples of things that either you do i'd love to hear what you do in your life or or perhaps for a more rookie patient what what are the range of things that you might uh be considering well we talk about heat as one example so sauna therapy is an amazing example of that and that's what i do personally you know not so much on these sweltering days but you know, almost daily or at least three to four times a week, sitting in the sauna, getting those heat shock proteins up that help regulate cell growth. Um, so sweat out some of the gunk, increase our red blood cell and oxygen delivery to the cells, all that sort of stuff. Releasing endorphins. Like sauna therapy can do all of these things for people. So that's one option, but not everyone's going to have access to that. But I mean, I just had a patient talk to me today who I saw for the first time two days ago and and I got you know chronic pain uh, situation going on. I'm like, well, this is a consideration now or down the road. Talk to him today. He's like, oh, I went out and bought a sauna. So he's all over that. He's doing it. And I think that's going to pay huge dividends for him. Um, but there's also hydrotherapy, cold immersion, right? The whole Wim Hof thing that's going on these days, which has some really great stuff with it. Or just like a hot, cold contrast shower that we talk about in first year naturopathic school, right? Just that cold shock to the system, really getting that peripheral heart moving, all those arterioles pumping and opening and shunting everything to the core. But there's also that hormetic piece to it too, right? That's affecting the mitochondria. And fasting is another example of that. Right? Mm-hmm. And fasting, you know, that's not for everybody. You can work up to that. But intermittent fasting is amazing in terms of what happens on a mitochondrial level. Um, in terms of repair and enhancing the biogenesis of mitochondria, um, promoting cell survival, all these sorts of things, simply from uh, taking a break from eating all day, mm-hmm. right? It's like mm-hmm. uh, we're eating, our body goes into, okay, time to build and make things like muscles or fat or whatever. But when we're fasting, the body kind of goes into, oh, more of a sort of protective regenerative role. So that's just by flipping that switch. So these are all things like, what are we, what am I incorporating? Is it, am I asking someone to do a a sauna? Am I asking someone to do cold, hot shower contrasts? Are we looking at some intermittent fasting um, or breath work, like intermittent hypoxic training, right? Basically holding your breath to stress out the cells. And the cells go, oh, we're not getting what we need. We better maximize what we have kind of thing. So you have this interface between the alveoli, those little sacs at the end of the lungs, and the capillaries that take all that oxygen and deliver it to the tissues, to the blood. That relationship starts to tighten up real quick when you start to do this intermittent hypoxic training. It's like it, the alveoli and the capillaries start to exchange that oxygen at a, at a better rate. And so that's just from doing something like pranayama. For example, like a yogic type of breathing, you know, holding your breath. Mm-hmm. Uteko breathing is more of a technique that I lean towards clinically for people. So it's like learning to hold your breath, not just let it all go, right? Like we've always mm-hmm. been. Told. So the the intermittent hypoxic training, like the holding your breath thing, is is quite remarkable. What some of the research is showing there too, in terms of what happens if we drop that 
oxygen saturation in our blood to sort of mimic you know, what, what it would be like if we we're at 200 meters above sea level. All the adaptations that happen in our body from you know, the spleen releasing more red blood cells and oxygenation to the tissue and all that stuff. Um, and so that's not expensive. That's not hard to do. Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to practice and get a hang of, but it's something that as naturopaths, we can you know, coach people to do that stuff. Well, I, tr- I tried to uh, <clears throat> lure you in to talk about terrain and bugs and how maybe having zero bugs around is not the best uh, thing. <laughs> and it didn't work, I guess. I didn't lure you into that. But like, <clears throat> this room smells like Lysol. Hmm? Sorry, what'd you say, Rich? Well, that's a good segue, though, in terms of uh, the microbiome is another mechanism of understanding uh, the healing power of nature. Right, so the healing power of nature is the circadian rhythm. Healing power of nature is this mitochondrial function and giving the mitochondria its opportunity to do what it needs to do to flourish and grow. Um, but it's also like, what's, how are we connected to nature uh, microbially? Right, we co-evolved with bugs, with worms, with ectoparasites, with all kinds of stuff. And that's that whole old friends hypothesis which is a little different than this hygiene hypothesis that you're alluding to today was like everyone bathing in Purell. And, um, and, you know, we've kind of pinned that on uh, our disconnection from microbes, but a lot of it has to do with lifestyle more than just over cleaning things. It's our separation from our um, contact with those microbes over time, right? Urbanization. Was so this the old friends thing that you're talking about? Yeah. Right, so it's that. Yeah, can, can you talk a bit about that? Because I don't know it. Yeah, so basically, as hunter gatherers, we're developing, co-evolving with mud, water, soil, bugs, microbes, and they're they're giving us some hormetic stress too. We have to adapt to them. We're going to work with some of them. We're going to fight off some of them. We're going to build resilience because of that contact and and that interaction with them. And so we have this exposure to a, like a massive biodiversity. Right, that really required us to build this resilience and evolve with them. And this helped us regulate our immune systems and keep down inflammation. And so what this old friend's hypothesis is saying is that we've lost relationship with countless number of these bugs. And one of the consequences of that is this chronic state of inflammation that we're, we're dealing with sort of in most of our patients and in ourselves to some degree. And we, we, don't, we have no idea of knowing which relationships we've lost. And so that's the old friend's hypothesis. We've grown up with these guys and then we've lost them. And now we're kind of just in the infancy of getting a handle on what that might mean or how we can renegotiate that to some degree. And so that has a lot to do with lifestyle changes. So locking ourselves inside, away from our circadian rhythms, away from contact with soil, microbes, that sort of thing. Keeping nice and comfortable, air conditioning, heat, blankets, yeah. eating all the time. Drinking glasses full of Purell, like all that stuff is not gonna <laughs> not gonna help us in the long run. It hasn't. Mm-hmm. So um, that microbiome relationship, and what I find really cool about the microbiome, and so the microbiome meaning all the bugs and bacteria and all that stuff that exists on our skin and our gut and the soil that we interact with that promote the health of us as an organism. And 
we're really, the, the, the research around that has exploded in the last 10, 15 years. And it's really giving us a quantifiable understanding of our actual connection to the natural world, to the great outdoors, the mountain equipment co-op version of the outdoors. It's like, aha, the dirt is good. The dirt does help uh, with depression, for example. Right. And so and we can start to quantify that as like, oh, we're seeing that this bug is linked to this kind of thing and this bug is doing this. And so for our hard headed Western heads that have always kind of held this separation from nature thing. And we're more indigenous cultures where it was more built into the worldview that everything is connected. Even a rock has a sort of purpose and energy to it, uh, whereas we're separate and we're going to dominate nature. Now we're seeing, oh shit, we are linked mm-hmm. to bugs and now we can see it. So now we can start to wrap our heads around that. And that has the uh, potential to you know, change our worldview significantly, right? Where it is more of a terrain version of reality is like, well, I think we might need to change our farming practices, for example, right? Because the soil mm-hmm. is the microbiome of the earth. And if we're giving it Roundup, the antibiotics of the soil, what are we doing? And so mm-hmm. to form different policies around those sorts of things, for example. But that's reconnecting with nature is this understanding of uh, our um, symbiotic relationship with bugs. We are all nature's bitches. Is that, that's what I say. Yeah, I think that's Do you a, feel yeah. like... Moving on. Yeah. No, I was, I probably, well, shouldn't, it's I probably it shouldn't say this, but do you feel like the current um, thing for, do you feel like with COVID where literally it's become a fear us versus this one bug perspective um, that has gone, you know, kind of very far on that path of, you know, us versus this one bug. Do you feel like that is going to be a detriment or further separate us from, like, do you think we're smart enough to get the complexity of this? Um, I, this is a loaded question. I just, what you were saying is just so relevant to our current uh, that's why I tried to. That's why I tried to lure them in. I just said it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. To be determined. Let's just put it that way. I, I was feeling really optimistic because of this research around the microbiome and understanding that, hey, maybe regenerative agricultural practices are something that, you know, might take hold here for a bit. And, um, and then this happened and we kind of just shrunk right back into sort of a, a fear response around it. And, and that might set us back from our capacity to actually embrace this understanding on a more collective level. And so it's important to have these conversations to say, hey, what about this perspective, right? Um, and when we think about uh, the long term, how do we want to develop these relationships with nature? Right? Do we want to continue to dominate and sort of plug the holes in the leaking dam approach, or do we, you know, want to try a different way? So, to be determined, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Where are we going next? I, I love the story we're weaving. I think we're bringing up some really cool themes. Um, our next 
point we were going to talk about was deep nature connection and practices, although I feel like we've woven some of those through our conversation already. Yeah, so at the beginning, I sort of broke it down as sort of the great outdoors and then sort of the laws of nature. And so those represented by the microbiome, by hormesis and the mitochondria. So that's sort of the mechanism pieces that we can wrap our Western brains around and say, oh yeah, we are nature. We're not separate from it. And this is how we can engage with its healing potential. And then there's the great outdoors piece, which the mechanisms aren't as clear, but we know there's benefit there. Right. And so this is how do we actually engage with the outdoors? How do we engage with nature? Um, and so looking at something like forest bathing, for example. So forest bathing is sort of this whole movement out of Japan where there's actually, you know, significant amount of research done around that. And it's just nature immersion therapy is one, another way to kind of frame it. Uh, and so it's getting out in the forest. And this isn't just kind of putting on your headphones and going for a jog through the bush. This is about really actively engaging with nature, engaging your nervous system in a particular way, opening up the senses, approaching the tree as though there is a relationship between yourself and the tree, for example, right? Maybe the tree does have something to impart to you, right? Um, so there's sort of that backdrop, the forest therapy. And so what we see is that there are numerous benefits to it on the cardiovascular level, for example, decreases in blood pressure. We see markers of cardiovascular disease go down. We see uh, heart rate variability, which is essentially a measure of, you know, are we in a sympathetic charge, a stressed out state, or are we in a parasympathetic relaxed state? Heart rate vari variability is one way to kind of start to quantify what state we might be in. And we see that forest therapy helps drop that down into a parasympathetic state and diminish that sympathetic charge. Um, so do we know the mechanisms? No, we just know that these things are happening in the cardiovascular system. We know that in the immune system, natural killer cells go up when we're engaging in forest therapy. Natural killer cells, you know, they get rid of tumor cells, they get rid of virally infected cells, they help our immune system do what it needs to do. Bringing down things like interleukin, those are markers of inflammation. So there's a lot going on just by being out there. So we're able to measure and see what hanging out in the forest can do for our cardiovascular system, what it can do for our, our immune system. Um, and we're just, I think, starting to spread that out into, ah, we're noticing that there are some smells in the forest that are actually doing something. So that might be a mechanism, something in the olfactory nerve that's you know, so we smell that cedar and it really helps improve immune function. It helps to um, decrease um, some of those things I talked about, decrease cortisol, increase dopamine in the saliva. So these sorts of things we're starting to see. And that's uh, just from kind of getting out and reconnecting with nature in a mindful way and engaging that. Essentially, for me, I think it all breaks down to get out of the sympathetic charge and into the parasympathetic state. Um, and I don't think I need to know more mechanistically around that, but it'll be cool to see what, what emerges that way. Well, there's even, um, there's even microbiomes <clears throat> on the earth, right? So that if you are in a forest, there'll be a different sort of air microbiome than if you're in, um, in a different area or there's different and even different areas uh, like, 
geographic areas of the earth, even if they're both their land masses, they have different microbiomes. Like it's just, it's just one of those micro macro uh, things that, uh, well, you didn't, you didn't talk too much about holism, I guess, but I mean, it's underneath all this all. Um, but yeah, there's, there's like, even the earth has a microbiome. There's different like concentrations of, of different microbes in different areas of the earth. And it's just, it's kind of fascinating um, that that's, that happens in us too. Well, in Japan, they did a study on like different forests and sort of the different oils that are floating around in the air and, and, and those chemicals that we're breathing in um, and how different forests might have different effects or have different effects for different people, which is kind of neat and is speaking to what you're talking about, right? So, um, I mean, we could study this for a million years and still scratch the surface probably. Um, but I want to share one, one sort of study or sort of observation that was made relative to tree species specific effect on anxiety. And I'm just going to read a little quote here for you because I think it's, it's funny. Um, so one uh, study investigated whether there was a tree species specific effect on perceived anxiety in young adults. And the study concluded that birch and oak forests were most beneficial for alleviating anxiety associated with schoolwork and social contact. Whilst working related stress improved most from exposures to oak and maple forests. Interestingly, this study also concluded that heavier body weight people derived more benefit than lighter body weight people in oak forests. Yes. So I just thought it was kind of interesting. Interesting. Funny anything. It's like, Okay, I guess I, Dave, you're hanging out with the oaks. I'm hanging out with the beach or the birch. <laughs> so I just thought that was kind of Well, and it would be cool to inform our, our lives and workplaces and schools, you know, incorporating. I know, I know schools and workplaces are actually getting smarter in design and incorporating nature, but that would be a specific example where you could really work with that. Yeah, I mean, the... There's no real limit to how we can sort of pursue these understandings and, uh, and apply them for sure. Um, and one of the things I, I wanted to touch on in terms of um, forest therapy or immersion in nature. So there's also the whole understanding of grounding and earthing, right? And, and I think that that requires more study and is really quite compelling, but it's sort of this notion that the earth has sort of these electrons, these free electrons that when we're barefoot on the earth or sleeping on the earth, we absorb those and those help deal with free radicals and help rebalance our, our immune systems and our, probably has an effect on the mitochondria and that sort of stuff. Um, so, um, you know, just getting from a clinical perspective, how do you help people do this if they don't have a force around them? Can they get outside barefoot in the summertime for 20 minutes a day, for example? That can have positive effect in reconnecting us with those healing potentials of literally of nature. Um, there was one sort of cool study I, I saw, uh, just like a case study of a 84 year old woman with a um, diabetic ulcer on her ankle that hadn't changed or improved at all in about eight weeks. And so the only intervention they did was use these electrodes, like a grounding mat sort of thing that mimics the surface of the earth. And she put her feet on that for half an hour a day for two weeks. And within a week, there was a 70% reduction in pain and a, like an 80% or something like that increase in mobility. And by the second week, there was no pain. She had no limp. And you could see that the actual ulcer had almost completely healed over. And that's just from 
grounding. So that's just an example of how, you know, we could scoff at it and say, this is hippy dippy, do walking weirdo stuff, or mm-hmm. could, uh, let's just kind of simplify some stuff here and make it accessible to people mm-hmm. and kind of give them some power back too, to say, how about just kind of going barefoot? Right. So that's just an mm-hmm. example. And who knows what else improved? You know, that's the other thing with studies and stuff. We, you, know, you only measure what you're looking for. And who knows what else improved when that got better? Because, again, another sort of thing with holism is what's good for the parts is good for the whole. And, uh, you know, if that, if that part got better, I bet you the whole got better too in, in some way. So holism is, um, like, I guess it's, it's, it's a difficult phenomenon to, to measure with a lot of the deterministic uh, viewpoint that we that we sort of have a bias towards in in the West, but I guess that those the uh, it's not like the t- determinism is bad. Uh, it's just um, man, we could we could talk about holism for a long time. I think. <laughs> I, think it's, I think we're at a, a cool point where we can do both. Like you can kind of zoom in and zoom out, mm-hmm. like micro zoom to the macro, and start to see patterns. And I think that's uh, as naturopathic doctors that's what our training really helps facilitate is to notice mm-hmm. patterns and nature is patterns and yes. part of the rhythms and, and how are those patterns disrupted so we can support those systems as opposed to sort of go on the wild goose chase of the symptom. And uh, I think that's a really mm-hmm. significant piece is zoom in, zoom out. And sort of, if you're going to, if you're going to put your, all your eggs in one of those baskets, you're going to, you're going to miss the plot. So I think it's yeah. important to be able to do that yeah that's like uh the ability we've talked about before the ability Mm -hmm. to take different perspectives and uh say look the guy who's looking on the on the microscope slide isn't wrong and the and the the girl who's looking in the telescope isn't wrong no one's wrong they're just different perspectives and uh, i think that's what uh you as a rootsy naturopath do really really well and i think a a good naturopath is is going to be able to be able to uh, take those different perspectives and adopt uh, whichever one is most appropriate to to the individual in front of them. I think that uh, that blind man and elephant has come up Ooh, yeah. like maybe three or four with three or four guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even our podcast finds patterns within what our conversations are. But um, oh, and even your that. topic outline today, you know, had both of those lots of those different perspectives. Yeah, and I was just going to use that elephant one, so I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, so with this whole kind of immersion in nature uh, aspect too, is um, really what's going on in the nervous system, what's going on in the prefrontal cortex, is that part of the brain that's really responsible for sort of creativity, focus, getting things done that way. And um, so when you talk about meditation, right, there's kind of like, I'm sure you have those patients who's like, oh, I can't meditate. There's no way I can meditate. Right. And, and you look at them and it's like, yeah, I don't think sitting down to try and meditate is going to work for you. You're just, the focus isn't there. It's going to create anxiety. And so this focus based meditation is more of a challenge for them. And that might have to do with their prefrontal cortex. That might have to do with how their vagus nervous firing and all and how their nervous system functions. Um, but that's where like mantras and visualizations and prayers can be helpful. But in sort of more of this nature immersion or nature connection type of meditation, we're talking more about like 
what's been termed as like a soft fascination or like a wandering or inviting curiosity. So you're walking through the bush and you're picking up cues from what's happening around you and you're going in sort of open-minded and open to the sensory inputs around you, visually, auditory, the smell, the taste of things. And you're, you're just kind of being led and that opens up completely different pathways that basically allows that prefrontal cortex to chill out, right? So if you're over-focused and you, now you blur and you can't focus anymore, you gotta, gotta get into that soft fascination. You gotta get out into, the, into nature or even looking at a picture of nature can facilitate to that, that to some degree. But it's these sort of different ways of quote unquote meditating. And so that wandering is something that is a core routine in deep nature connection. So this whole school of um, deep nature connection practices called the Coyote's Guide to Reconnecting with Nature. And that's kind of what about eight, eight, nine years ago really sort of got me chewing on this. And they've narrowed down to these core routines that they've looked at all these sort of nature-based or indigenous societies across the world. And they're like, what happens in their day-to-day -day practices that we can distill down into trying to invite into our, how we work with children, for example. And one of these core routines is wandering. Just get out and wander. Right? And so that might be something I ask the patient to do. It's like, just go for a walk. Don't go around the block that you go around every single day all the time. Switch it up. Go for a wander. And things start to shift. That vagal break that comes on that your, one of your amazing previous guests talked about in terms of the vagus nerve. And like, That's an amazing doctor. Yes. He's my Anyways, so just that vagal response piece that can happen from wandering. There's another core routine called a sit spot, which is basically uh, for certain patients. Again, I'm meeting patients where they are at, and there's certain patients that are like, yeah, I'm into that. I'll do that. Half an hour, you, if you've got a place that sort of is a natural, it could be under a tree, it could be looking out your window. It's somewhere you go every day for 30 minutes, and you're really just opening the senses in that place. You're listening, you're looking, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're, you're feeling, you've got your feet on the ground, so you've got that whole earthing thing going on, and you're developing a relationship with that place. And you're seeing the different animals come through, you're seeing the different seasons happen, and you're orienting to that space. And as you build that connection through these senses, you start to feel more in tune with that place. And perhaps that facilitates more of a feeling of connectivity, safety, that allows certain parts of your nervous system, namely that parasympathetic part of your nervous system to kick into gear more easily. So it's a way of building that muscle, so to speak. I'm just thinking as you're talking about those, um, I always bring it back to women's health, but there's interesting parallels there with the menstrual cycle because, which is again, one of natural's or our natural rhythms. Um, but at ovulation, when, when women are ovulating, we are more inclined to wander. So uh, we will wander further from home. Um, we will take more risks. We will explore. I'll get really excited to try new things. And so, um, you know, we are, you know, that we're designed to wander um, at ovulation. And then your stillness one makes me think of the, um, when a woman has her period, it's a more still, quiet, inward reflection of you know, just sitting with yourself and noticing. So I just observe that those fit into those parts of the cycle really well.
That's cool. I didn't know that about the wandering and ovulation. Really, we're wandering to look for hot men, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to find. I was waiting. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Um, Rich, I th I think uh, I'd like to I'd like to close up this um, this awesome discussion about nature cure holism. Uh, all these these really really important um, concepts that are the underpinnings of what all we do as naturopaths. Um, just if there's one thing that someone who's listening, because this this is, I mean, I I really enjoyed this because, and I always enjoy this aspect of of listening to you. Sometimes we just say funny jokes to each other, but this is um, this is one other uh, great aspect of of talking to you is that it's like deep deep rooty stuff that we don't always think about and we can't forget about so it's been great to listen in like a in a sort of different mode uh, a little more right-brained than usual but if there's one thing that uh, listeners can maybe take home from what you're trying to get across here like there's a lot there there's a lot of details there's a lot of concepts what's the one thing you would like someone to, to take home from uh, our chat today well Reconnecting with nature doesn't have to be a three-week trek through the Himalayas. It can be a real simple act. And if you kind of center that act around, does this uh, allow my nervous system to shift gear or will it facilitate that shift of gear? Or will this stimulate some hormetic type of response? Try and engage in something like that on a daily basis. Whatever works for you, whatever is accessible to you. We've talked about several today and some of them are really as simple as holding your breath or going barefoot on the grass. So just even maintaining that awareness that you can connect to it, you're just going to continue to build on that inevitably because that's where nature wants to take you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think even being aware of that connection, I think it's so easy to forget it. And I love that you say that I think intuitively we remember that, that we are part of this beautiful, cool world. Um, but I, you don't hear many people just talking about the importance of that connection. Um, and I think within our own medicine, you know, Dave had said earlier on, sometimes we talk about this as something magical. And that yet I think sometimes it's something that is at risk of being lost. Mm -hmm. um, and I've even seen fights over it on Facebook forums within our profession of what mm -hmm. this looks like and what it means to our medicine and is holism spelt with a W or an H. <laughs> H. Um, and, um, and so I just, it's a great conversation to have. And I think we talk about foundations all the time and this might be the missing one. It's missing for some people, for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. so I really value what you're reminding us of. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, thanks just for the opportunity just to kind of chat about it and dialogue it. It's good. Yeah, we might have to come back to you again because I don't only think it's important for um, for people to know about. It's also important for the people that are sharing our message, meaning our, our younger naturopaths. Um, and I think it'll it'll um, it'll make you a better make you a better uh, practitioner naturopathic medicine to to take heed of this stuff and realize um we're in danger of getting a little bit 
too deterministic in, in what we do. And, and sometimes you just got to get out of the way of nature. Like we always like to add things, take this one little thing, add this super food from Brazil or just have a sauna and walk on the ground. You know, and we've, it's, I don't know why, I don't know why it seems less sexy to a lot of people or, or less of an intervention, but it's, it really is about getting uh, out of the way and nature's already, it's within us and it's around us all the time. And it's sad that there's like a, even a, we have to make this effort. i almost find it sad. We have to make this effort to connect. It's, it's there all around us, you know, and it's, so that's why you're kind of just reminding us of that. And I think it's going to make better Nash Pass and, and therefore, um, well, I'll be a better Nash Pass if we, the more we get you on and then we get better patients, uh, results with, with what you're bringing. So thank you so much for reminding us and I'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs> okay. Is that it? Yeah, thanks, Doc. Uh, well, I'd love to have you on. Hey, I want to give, uh, you're at Village Naturopathic in London? Yeah, so it's really, I can send you all that on, a, on that on the email, uh, the website, if that's what you're looking for. Um, yeah, and the Facebook page and all that sort of stuff. Well, tell oh. it to us now, because most of our people are mainly listening. Or are we still Yeah, talking? we haven't stopped recording yet, so. I'll <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that was the off-air comment because I feel like it might have been worse. <laughs> much worse. Villagenaturopaths.com uh, is our website. You can find us at Village Naturopaths on Facebook and find me on Enriched Roots on Instagram. Awesome. And if people want to dive deeper into this topic, you have your own podcast. Yes, I do uh, participate as a, a part-time co-host on a podcast called Rewild oh, okay. Bio. Um, and so I'm in on uh, several of those episodes and that can be found on any of your um, podcast uh, platforms. Rewild my bio. Yes. Okay. It was a, a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah. Likewise. It was really a great chat and I'm looking forward to the next one. All right. Thanks, Rich. Okay. Bye. Bye.